It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. Well, it's a bit more complex than this when it comes to China, the Indo-Pacific region, but especially in the the close Asian countries. You've got Japan, you've got Taiwan, you've got China, uh, which is the trifecta of potential problems. U.S. Marines in Japan uh, developing training, developing their capabilities to intervene early, forcefully. That's one possible scenario in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan uh, that obviously would bring us in a direct conflict with China. Uh, That's one uh, particular scenario on the table. Uh, The instruments of national power are in play. To what extent are they in play? And this posturing could work out in deadly ways or with ongoing tension. So what does this all mean? Uh, Michael Swain, director of the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute, joins me. So Taiwan, tensions, Beijing, Washington, Japan, Michael, uh, is there more skin in the game right now to what extent? Well, the, the situation continues to be, I think, tense in many ways. Um, you're going to have a meeting between uh, Secretary of State Blinken and his counterpart in Beijing very soon, uh, in a few days uh, in Beijing. And uh, that's intended to try to put some floor under the relationship. But uh, these issues that you've mentioned, particularly front and center Taiwan, uh, remain on a, a negative trajectory. It's not necessarily a trajectory towards war, but it's certainly a trajectory towards greater tensions in the future and, and possibly a much more serious crisis than we've seen in the past because neither side is willing to change their behavior in ways that would provide some level of reassurance to each other as opposed to what they're doing now, which is sort of endless levels of military deterrence, signals of resolve, and that is not having the desired effect on either side. Uh, it's just causing the other side to double down. And so where does this end? Um, there's got to be some effort to try to reach some kind of mutual understanding, a combination that can reestablish a floor under a, a, a serious floor that can, that can be durable over time under the uh, U.S.-China relationship and then by virtue of that under the Taiwan situation. In order to get to some kind of floor, is one of the first things necessary recognizing who your opponent really is? This this idea that is, I think, more, I don't know if I want to say prevalent, but uh, more reflective of people's feelings around the world or governments, is that it's just two governments having an argument when, in fact, it is a communist government and a free government structure, the United States, a freer government structure in Japan and the desire for a free government in Taiwan. Again, communism, the Chinese Communist Party, that seems to be left off the table deliberately, that recognition. Well, I, actually, I don't think it is. I mean, there there is a clear understanding in Washington that uh, Beijing is ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, and that that party um, has policies that do in various ways challenge or threaten the United States. But let's, let's be clear about one thing regarding Taiwan in particular. The position of the Chinese Communist Party, that Taiwan is part of China, 
and an internal matter for the Chinese government to deal with is not simply a Chinese Communist Party view. It is very closely linked to Chinese nationalism. And so even individuals who do not like the Chinese Communist Party, for example, the former leaders of the Republic of China on Taiwan, the Kuomintang, Chinese Nationalist Party, agree with the Communist Party about what Taiwan is and what its relationship is to China. So we can't simply say on this matter it's a question of communism versus democracy. And, and I think in general, more broadly, I think that by just simply using that frame, democracy versus authoritarianism, which of course is true, that you know, the United States and China have that difference in political system. But by using that as the core frame of the relationship and using it as a way in which we look at all aspects of the relationship, I think does not serve our interests. It tends to narrow our options. It tends to make our policies much more confrontational than they otherwise could or should be. Uh, and it gets in the way of trying to solve problems, major problems that exist that both the United States and China want to try and grapple with. So we have to have a way of working with the, the Chinese, even if they are led by the Chinese Communist Party. We've got to be able to, in that sense, recognize who they are, recognize the importance of China in the world today. Not all countries are on board with the same more zero-sum-like view the United States has towards China, and the U.S. has to adjust to that fact as well. So it's a much more complicated situation than the simple juxtaposition of communism, non-communism. Well, it's, it starts there. I take your point. However, under Chinese nationalism, if you separate the two, if Chinese nationalism existed and was able to be in charge or the governmental entity within China, that would be a different scenario. The Chinese Communist Party is in charge. Therefore, the view of Taiwan and China being together as one nation, the one China policy would be different under Chinese nationalism than under what began with Mao's takeover and where we are today under Xi Jinping. So there is a difference in a recognition there. There are other countries who do oh, sure. see it that way and other leaders, especially in the Latin American countries, who are now beginning to recognize even more what the Chinese Communist Party has done or continues to do, whether it's the debt trap, whether it's the use of political power, even here in the United States. But to, to the points of countering China, the idea that negotiation, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but some say negotiation is the only way and acceptance of China is the only way this is resolved is also a surrender to communism, which continues to expand rather than contract even within its own borders. Well, again, I just think that that's not you know, a really accurate way of trying to look at the problem. It's, it's not do we accept or don't we accept the Chinese Communist Party. Um, the, the point is the Chinese Communist Party, over 90 million members in China, um, isn't going away. Um, it is leading a government that has uh, considerable support within the Chinese population, although it's very hard to determine exactly what those numbers would be, uh, because it's provided a lot of goods to the Chinese people, because it's provided security, uh, and in some ways because it stood up to some of the actions taken by other countries. Uh, that feeds again to Chinese nationalism. So, yes, the Chinese Communist Party does things that really trouble other countries, particularly democracies. And I totally agree that in the case of Taiwan, the Taiwanese people are not at all desirous of unifying with China 
given China's behavior towards Hong Kong and other things, its so-called one China, one country, two systems formula for Taiwan that it applied to Hong Kong is just a non-starter for the Taiwanese people now. It's not going to work. And that's largely because of the political nature of the Chinese regime. However, even a nationalist China uh, in, in many ways could cause problems because China is, in terms of its sovereignty claims within the Western Pacific and in other areas, it's not a status quo power. It wants to change certain aspects of the international order to better reflect its interests. And I think even a democratic nationalist China would be pretty, pretty darn um, vo- you know, strong in voicing its views on this. It's not to say it would be as adversarial or conf- confrontational as it is today with a communist China, but there would certainly still be problems. And there'd still be issues that we would have to deal with. Um, And as far as China's expansion beyond its borders is concerned, I simply don't accept the idea that China is kind of using its policies and dedicated to expanding its political system overseas. Uh, I I don't know how you can make that statement, given the reality of what China has done in numerous other countries. And I'm speaking also from the perspective of over a dozen presidents and former presidents in Latin America that I have sat with in the last six months or so that have described China's activities in their countries. They do the same in the Caribbean. They do this in the stands. The Chinese Communist Party has a clear doctrine outlined even within their constitution of how they see things. 90 million govern a billion. And then To a final point, there is no successful communist society in the world. It eventually destroys the society internally or fails for various other reasons. That's the history of communism. So short term, we can go along here, but long term, communism destroys societies. So do we counter it here? And there are risks, as you pointed out. But the fact is, they are literally in the business of changing and destroying societies. Fact about communism. Well, I, I guess we're going to have to disagree there because I don't see it quite as starkly as you do. Um, well, I tell think me the China's... successful communist society that exists. Well, communist societies do not operate effectively overseas. I agree with that. They often come to power because they prey on poverty and division, inequality within countries. And, you know, they either get elected into office in some cases or they take power in some cases. And they often don't run countries terribly well. In the Chinese case, uh, it's been a mixed bag. Uh, There's been enormous successes in, in some regards, particularly in bringing people out of poverty and all of that and providing security, stability within the country overall. Um, but there's also been, of course, huge amounts of repression, and that's been greater under Xi Jinping than in the past. But I don't believe that the Chinese think that their model of political leadership within China is something that can and should and must be replicated across the across other countries in, in the world. I just don't think the record of Chinese behavior in that regard uh, uh, confirms that kind of view. It certainly, it certainly shows that they want to increase their influence um, who doesn't? What great power doesn't? It wants to increase its influence. It does so in some cases by resorting to policies that others should uh, oppose and criticize. But that doesn't, to my mind, equate to this kind of massive effort to overturn other countries, turn them into small Chinas, 
and alter their political systems in ways that comport with that of China. That kind of behavior I simply don't see going on with the Chinese. Okay, so then the to what end, to what you just said, to what end? The Chinese activities, whether you look at economic, it's one of their most effective uh, tools, if you will, in other countries. Uh, They extract resources. They extract wealth. Let's use Africa as an example in the mining of Africa. Let's look at even Afghanistan in recent terms, where Afghanistan is rich in mineral and rich in gold deposits. Uh, You look at lithium, for example. China extracts and does not leave much but destruction in its weight in Africa, in its wake in Africa. They mine, they don't train the indigenous population, they leave an indigenous population, sometimes worse than where they found it. There's already a great tragedy on the continent, not just related to the Chinese. And, and that is the fact of their existence in those areas, in Latin America, because other countries, Western countries, are mostly absent. The Chinese come in and they're the ones that they make deals with. And as they expand, they extract, but they don't expand within those countries any form, for the most part, of economic freedom, of education, of anything. So if their influence is a negative, then how can we see it any other way? You see, we're we're just starting from a different baseline here, David. I don't see the Chinese record as being as as categorical, uh, categorically negative as you've just described. Um, there's been a lot of studies done of this, of Africa's, of China's role in Africa, of the issue of the question of debt trap diplomacy, as it's called. Study after study have shown that those two things, a net and negative impact on Africa and trying to lure countries into debt in order to take them over, are simply not validated as basic policies that the Chinese have pursued as a deliberate national policy. You've got individual companies, Chinese corporations, who have given, been given mandates to go out and develop and make economic ties and make money and extract, get resources, etc. And they go out and they do that, and they do that to varying degrees, either with or without um, you know, the, the support of uh, those people within China who want to see you know, good relations. So you have problems in some cases, but they're not as uniform. They're not as across the board. You also have good lessons. You have things that have happened in Africa. Some African countries do appreciate the infrastructure growth and development that the Chinese have brought to the countries, and they have done that. There's no question about it. They've built infrastructure in these countries. They haven't just taken resources out of the countries and given nothing to them. The loans themselves have to be looked at on a case-by-case basis because Chinese banks are the main drivers behind those loans. They don't want to lose money. They don't want to throw money into a, into, a, into a situation where they don't get any returns and the country just goes bankrupt or defaults. That's not an advantage for the Chinese uh, banks involved. And I don't think the government wants to have that happen either. The debt trap diplomacy is, is really, with all great respect, it's a canard. It is not reflected in the actual historical record of how the Chinese have conducted their business in financing these kinds of developing countries. Yes, they have engaged in abusive practices at times, oftentimes because of bank decisions, oftentimes because of lack of experience and lack of knowledge and lack of appreciation of local conditions. 
So there have been abuses, there have been problems there, but it has not been seen by scholars as a deliberate policy designed to extract resources and control other countries. Well, it's, and I'll even make sure I'm clear on this. It's not about control of the country as it is control of the resources needed. And again, example after example of China's extraction of wealth in different forms, not just in mineral resources, but in influence and power in the region to further their extraction, which is what they've done. And, and to use simple terms, when you talk about infrastructure, and I can go country after country, whether it's Jamaica with the Manly Highway or infrastructure under Tedros in Africa uh, before the UN and other leaders, other countries where they've done this, they literally go in and build, leave, and still charge for that in simple terms for the people that live in these countries. They put in effectively toll road systems, which are ways for these countries' residents to pay back to China. Now, I get that that's the deal that's on the table, but the reality is it's unaffordable for these nations. Well, if it's, if it's unaffordable for them, then you've got to look into the whole question of feasibility and how to, who conducts feasibility studies, to what degree the Chinese oversee this and, are, and have experience in doing it, or are they, are they not experienced in doing it so they make mistakes in this, to what degree are they too likely to listen to? A lot of these countries are desperate for foreign assistance. They want foreign investment, infrastructure investment. Oftentimes they don't get that from the West because either the, the funding, the resources is inadequate or the conditions that are attached to it are too onerous for the governments. I'm not saying that those conditions are, should be you know, not there, but the governments involved don't want to take them on. So the Chinese come and they say, we will do this. You want this infrastructure? Okay. Now, the Chinese have a responsibility to look at the feasibility of this and see if this is a practical thing that can go forward. I, agree, I think the Chinese, in many cases, have not done that adequately. That is not an argument about sort of a deliberate Chinese communist effort to try and control these countries, et cetera, et cetera. It has a lot to do with incompetence, a lot to do with the inability and experience of a lot of these Chinese companies and the banks that back them to get engaged in these countries and do it in a much more prudent and balanced way. Um, they, try to, they tend to go into areas that the West just simply won't go into for various reasons because they want to try and you know, make money out of those areas. I mean, that is one of their primary objectives, is to try and make money. And um, that leads to abuses. But w w as we've seen, we've, this is not unique to, this, to the Chinese, as we well know. Look at the record of the United States and Latin America, for example. No, look, we, we've not done a great job in Latin America. We also have not extracted to the extent that others have, uh, whether it was from colonialism to now. Uh, but there needs to be change in direction. The idea that China, not your, I'm not saying you're saying this, but many hold the idea that we can simply negotiate detente with China economically is, is not practical because when one seeks to expand beyond, and that includes right here in the United States, you have the operational Chinese REITs, real, in, real estate investment trusts. You have Chinese insurance companies that invest as the back end 
or rather the foundation of these investments. Three went bankrupt within the last year that had major developments in Seattle, in New Jersey, in a, and a number of other developments. You have the acquisition of influence here in the United States with what's commonly referred to as the Chinatown strategy, which is vastly different than, say, just going to Chinatown in San Francisco or New York, whatever the case may be. And if we don't do something to stop their ability to support their system and have a better balance, then the long game favors them over not only other countries, but here in the United States. And eventually, as I said, their system fails societies. Well, I think you're, I mean, you suggest the, if, if the Chinese try and go into these systems and into these other countries and they're trying to change their systems to be more like them, but the Chinese system itself is a failed system, that's not going to work too, too well in these, in these other countries. Other countries, I think, are not stupid. I mean, they look at the Chinese example. They see the kind of difficulties that China has, um, the uniqueness of China in many ways, with such a huge population, such a relative disparity of, of, or a lack of, of resources in many areas, and the kind of you know, history that the Chinese have had make it in some ways a very unique kind of country. And it's very hard to say, well, that country's got the right way to develop, and so you know, we need to really emulate that a lot better. I am not a big uh, believer that the Chinese can exert enormous influence over American society and start making Americans think, gee, the Chinese communist system looks pretty good to us, or what China's doing really sounds like it makes a lot of sense. To the exact opposite, Americans are becoming more wary towards China. I think they're becoming much less willing to to be receptive to Chinese blandishments and propaganda of various types in the United States. I think that's that's a concern primarily with the diaspora, with countries within uh, the countries that have large Chinese communities. You don't want to have those Chinese communities be unduly influenced by China, or of course not have China try to influence elections in the United States, which I think is overblown. I don't think the Chinese have done that to nearly the degree that some people might think. Um, in fact, in the United States, I'm not sure they've tried it at all, um, unlike Australia. But, but you know, the, 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 the idea, the specter that the Chinese are going to be this winning proposition, that in the end they're going to win out, I think is really, an ex really excessive in, 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 in assessing what China's power and influence will be over time. We're a lot stronger than that. And, and we have a lot more options and a lot more flexibility and a lot more capabilities in areas that I think will, will not allow the Chinese to be able to embark on the kind of policies that you're talking about, which I don't think that they're doing currently. Now, if we don't use the instruments available to us effectively, we use parts of it at time, diplomatic right? Dime, the dime strategy, the common use terms, but now we right. have to add communication and information right. as a key part of that. If we don't use it effectively, it's not about a necessary outcome, but also an effect on society. Still good debate. It's a complex situation and always appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you very much, David. All right. Michael Swain, director of the East Asia Program at the Quincy Institute. It is complex. There is no doubt about it.
can join me live on the David Webb Show Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east on Sirius XM Patriot 125.